When you were on the way back to Beirut, were you thinking that this was, did you like accept that you were never coming back or were you thinking I might come back? What, what was going on in your mind? No, back, th- back then I was a bit more optimistic. I was like, you know, things were going to change. I, the feeling that I'll never back, go back to Syria and see it, like I, it sunk in 2013. But 2012, you know, people were still optimistic. We still thought the regime would go. And I was like, you know, things are dangerous now, especially, you know, someone from my family just got killed. But, you know, I have a feeling things will change. It, it was a case of just, uh, I guess, a human trying to be optimistic. Yeah, like no human being could have imagined what Syria would turn into mm-hmm. in 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Syria was a really safe and good place if you were an urban urban person in, in 2010. I mean, it so quickly went from being one of the fastest developing countries in the region to being, quite frankly, the most dangerous country on Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about your time in Beirut and the uh, we talked about Hezbollah. We talked about people that you met at the American University of Beirut. Do you want? Is there anything else you want to? elaborate about on that or do you want to get into like what happened in 2013 what made you realize you weren't going to be able to go back i'll talk a bit about 2000 about 2012 what okay 2013 um 2012 you know back so uh, you know at this time there was also a refugee crisis coming it was it was it started happening it was picking up uh there wasn't an international response just yet and Syrians and, you know, Syria still had, like, uh, countries around Syria still had relatively more lax laws for Syrians to move than now. Now they need visas. They need, there's, there, there's a way, for, there's a more, um, it's way more regulated now than it used to be. So Syrians were pouring into Lebanon, taking refuge there, pouring to Jordan, pouring to Turkey, taking refuge there. And, uh, it, it came to a point where, we find Syrians sleeping on the streets of Beirut. My friends and I, we founded a, a refugee, a refugee assistance project. Um, and, and this was still at a time where, where international agencies like the, the United Nations Save the Children's Mercy Corps, USAID, they were still not responding to this. Uh, and you get, and, and then I, I started having like firsthand accounts of these refugees of, of what made them flee Syria. I remember, talking to this one, he was a teenage boy, maybe not even, maybe just a preteen, like 12 years old. He was from area in Idlib. And we were talking about our experiences in Syria, and I was telling him from Damascus, and like how I heard once, you know, shooting. And he told me about, he saw, he saw airplanes over his house falling. And it made me realize, like, how on a national scale, because I mean, my experience then back then was just limited to Damascus, but then interacting with all these refugees from all over Syria made me realize how bad it was. My friend Nader Atasi, when we were helping out these refugees once, and he interviewed some of the people. In 2013, my friends and I, we formed in, at the University of Beirut, the American University of Beirut, we formed the Students for Free Syria. It was a small student-led protest group dedicated to the freedom of Syria. When did the Syrian uprising become... When did it stop being as optimistic as it seemed initially? 
Um, so 2013, you know, 2012, the opposition was optimistic. They were, they were doing better. They were, you know, the regime was a really tough spot. Uh, defections were happening, you know, there are, you know, armed members of the, of the Syrian regime or civilian positions or even like regime, like inner regime. So you're having prime, prime minister, Manaf class from the inner regime, uh, lieutenants, ambassadors. They were, they were defecting. Jet, jet fighter pilots were defecting with their jets. Um, the armed opposition was on the outskirts of Damascus. Uh, you know, uh, the crisis response cell, uh, that is Bashar's uh, brother-in-law, the minister of defense was assassinated. Um, there were, there were three days in Damascus where, uh, bureaucrats did not show up to work. And I guess that was, that was where I think those three days where people thought, okay, it's going to happen right now. We're going to wake up to, to news that Bashar has been deposed or something. Um, it never did. It never materialized. The opposition even took half of Aleppo, but it just, it never materialized. 2013, you know, Hezbollah steps in. The opposition starts losing momentum. Things Hezbollah, you know, they, they openly, they were already, uh, they were already participating in the war, but in Southern, in 2013, they, they, they openly admitted it and took, they took, uh, one, one of Syria's Sir, border towns with Lebanon, Al Qusayr. And, uh, I was still volunteering with refugees in Lebanon back then. I went with, uh, you know, this one Palestinian Syrian and he would, he, uh, he was older than me. And he had, he had, he had like these leftist convictions and he tells me something. He's like, I, I was younger than I was, I was just about turning 20. I was optimistic. And he tells me something. Sorry. I was just about turning 21. And he tells me, he tells me cause he's a Palestinian. He's like, Syria will become like Palestine. Uh, it's just going to be that homeland that you talk about, you dream of, but you'll just, you'll just never live there. And no, he's right. Cause that's what it has been for the past eight years from. I had a hard time. I had a hard time accepting this fact that I remember it was kind of, it, 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 I had a small panic attack. Um, cause, you know, it, I was no longer optimistic. The momentum, the moment of the war was shifting and it became especially, you know, I guess the, the, the death knell, what really confirmed this was, you know, Obama came up with this red line. He's like, you know, don't, he was telling the senior regime, don't you, don't use uh, chemical weapons or, or else. And then when that day came on August, uh, I think it was August 23rd. Or else meant nothing. And I was like, okay. And, and at that point, I think everyone involved in the Syrian conflict realized there, there are no laws that are going to be upheld. There is no international humanitarian law that's being upheld. There are no, there are no chemical weapon conventions that are being held. There are no conventions against torture that are going to be, that are being enforced here. It's a free for all. It was an inflection point for the worst, uh, for the worst. It's probably one of the worst things Obama, it's one of the worst things Obama has done to Syrians. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I think as a foreign, foreign policy, uh, his foreign policy is trash. Yeah. I remember in the U.S. we were, we were afraid that a war and we were going to get involved in another war. Uh-huh. And we, we didn't understand a lot of, we, we didn't know any of the stuff that you just told me over the last hour. And uh-huh. like our thought, what, what most Americans were thinking was we don't want to get involved in another Iraq or Afghanistan. And obviously, that wasn't an accurate way of looking at it, but that was our perception. <clears throat> and looking back on it, I really do regret that. I really regret that we didn't have 
a better understanding of what was going on and what could have been done. Yeah. Because, like, it didn't have to be, like, a 2003-style invasion of the country. You know, I don't think most Syrians would have even wanted that from the sound yeah. of things. But, like, at least a no-fly zone would have made a yeah. huge difference. Or, or at least be transparent with the Syrians. At least be transparent with the Syrians. Don't, don't make up these things. Don't make us think or a certain thing and then we'll act, we'll act and, and rely on it and then it turns out it was all for naught. Yeah. Funny, funny story though. In 2013, just, you know, just after the attack, I was invited to a conference, uh, at the UN headquarters in New York. Um, so I was, I was traveling to JFK airport and this was, I think this was August 24th. So like two, three days after, after the chemical strike and the US, you know, uh, the France, UK and the US were contemplating a coordinated attack on, on the Syrian regime. And, uh, I was, I was entering JFK airport and I was held over for like a four hour interrogation. This was 2013, August 2013. So in, in that small, those small, those two weeks where we actually thought the regime was going to attack, uh, the, the, the US was going to, the Obama administration was going to do something about the chemical weapons attack. And I was held over for interrogation at JFK. And I, I thought, I thought it would be like, you know, something out of a movie, a movie scene. You're put into a dark room with a CIA agent and they'd ask all kinds of tough questions. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was put into a room with four, um, African American women, uh, who are more interested in their nails and their hair. Than, than me, they were asking me like all these qu- these uh, form questions. So they were reading from a paper, transcribing what I was telling them, and then they're like, you know, uh, talking about where they get their, their, their nails done. I guess, and oh, girl, where'd you where'd you get your nails done? Uh, uh, something like that. It was pretty funny, surreal. Surreal yeah. is the term. That's the perfect word for it. Surreal. <laughs> You know what? It, it sounds like something from a Cohen Brothers movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I thought so. The Assad regime had just used chemical weapons on on Buta three days prior to me arriving in JFK. JFK, okay. and the U.S. was contemplating attacking the Assad regime. I, I guess it would make. I don't. It, it was not random. It was because, definitely because I was Syrian. It was these guys. So they like, were they were scared you might be working for the regime. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. It sounds like I, mean, a, I, I don't fault them for it. I just, yeah. I just, um, I just like you know they, they. I was expecting, I was expecting a particular like you know uh, professionalism. Uh, yeah. These guys. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder how the Syrian macabre would have compared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd have a whole bunch of guys talking about like where who who trimmed their mustache or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. So, um, what happened after 2013? I know you got your bachelor's degree and then you decided to go to law school. No. Um, okay. So I, I, no, I graduated in 2014. Oh, okay. Uh, but this was because I was working with refugees. I got like, you know, um, my, my project, I, I worked for a project called the hand in hand project for displaced Syrians. It got, it got some recognition, um, by the United Nations and Stanford University. Um, and I was invited several times to travel to the U.S. and you know partake in these conferences and seminars. But I still, I still had a mess. I was still doing my bachelor's. I was, I was, I was like a three quarters through my my bachelor's degree. I got to a semester abroad in in France. Um, while I was in France, Stanford University wanted flew me over to Palo Alto for another conference. 
I I didn't know that you spent some time in France. Oh yeah. I where where were you? Paris. Oh dude. Yeah. It it gets it, it gets a bit cool here because one of one of my friends in Paris, she knew she met me back then. She was one of the people that endorsed my asylum application. So she like wrote an affidavit and everything. Wow. Um I started studying for the LSAT after that. Um, I went back to Beirut, so I did that. I, I went back to Beirut uh, after France for 2014. I graduated. Um, then I, I, I got accepted into a master's program in the UK. I lived in, in the UK for a year. And, uh, I was doing my master's on the restructuring. Like, I had a thesis topic on the restructuring of, of the Syrian government. And what were the factors of the, of the Syrian civil war? Where, where in the UK were you studying? The city called Coventry. There's a university over there called the University of Warwick. Okay. And, and I guess this, uh, then I got, I remember I took the LSAT in London and, uh, I got, I got a scholarship to study in law school in Ohio. And I think this was one of the biggest decisions I made in my life. I was like, I, I could have had the chance to apply for asylum in the UK. And I, I had a pretty good application. Like every, a lot of, there's a lot of documentation, things I've been involved in. Um, if, if someone would have just Googled my name, it was, it would, it would tell them enough about me that I was opposed to the Syrian regime. Um, but, you know, I, I, I wanted to become a lawyer. And I got a good scholarship to study in Ohio. And, uh, I rolled the dice and I went to Ohio. I got, I got, a, I got my visa approved. Uh, visas were not being, uh, it, it was like Syrians. It was hard for us to get to get a visa to the United States, even during the Obama years. But I, but I got my, a visa, and I went to Ohio to study there in law school. The last time I saw my family as a student, as an F one student, that's that's the visa category of of, of international students in the United States. It was during the last month of Obama's uh, of the Obama presidency, and I entered I entered the U.S. five days before Trump became president. Right and before the ban. Yeah, two, like, yeah, literally, li- literally two weeks before the ban. Real quick, do you think you could describe, uh, what was it like studying in Paris versus Coventry versus Ohio? I, I loved all those places. Uh, when you're going on a semester abroad, you, you don't take your studies seriously as much as you're, you're there to experience the country. Oh, hell yeah, dude. Experience the city. You're there for fun. Oh, yeah. Um, you you put in you you put in the, the the effort required for your classes and I did I did I mean and, and the nice thing is it it didn't matter if I if, if what grade it was it was just I had to get a passing grade and that's and that's what all that would be reflected on my transcript. Um, I studied I studied in uh, this university called the Institute for Political Sciences in, uh, of of Paris. Uh, Sciences Po is its name. Uh, it's it's a good university. I liked it. Uh, the Syrian, the Syrian diaspora in France is active. Uh, I remember, I remember partaking some of their events. Um, Paris is a nice city, very, very cos- cosmopolitan, very international. Um, don't go there if you want to go, if you want to learn French, because you'll always wind up speaking English instead. Oh yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Like, I would just walk around saying, parlez-vous anglais in the worst accent possible and, People would, that, that would open up French people immediately. Yeah, <laughs> that's 
It's like, oh, he he just embarrassed himself in front of me. Now I'm not a. Now I'm willing to do the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so Coventry, I imagine, was very different from Paris. Yeah. So um, you know, Paris is a, it's, it's a global city. Yeah. Paris is is a global city. Uh, the UK. So actually, the UK Coventry was the first time I did not live in capital city. All my life, I lived in capital cities. That could uh, be the title it, of your biography, dude. <laughs> Capital guess, cities. Yeah. yeah, all my life, except except Coventry and Cleveland. Yeah. Well, uh, what's the capital of Ohio? Columbus. Oh, okay. Even though I think Cleveland has more to show than Columbus. I was about to say, like, the vast majority of people know more about Cleveland than Columbus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the, the UK, you think all the UK is like London, and then you realize only London is like London. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I studied abroad in the UK. I landed in London, then I took a train to Oxford, and like no way. Yeah, and like the train ride, it, you could see the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, sudden, that's awesome. Yeah, thank you. When, when, when is this? When was this? Oh, uh, this was in late 2016. I was in the UK when oh. the 2016 election was going on. The the Brexit election. Oh no, uh, Trump and Hillary. Oh, so so I left the UK. I left the UK in August 2016. Ah, oh, fuck! So, we just so, missed each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we didn't know each other by then. I, yeah, I I got to know you when I was like, uh, I was I was studying for the bar exam and I was taking a break on Twitter. Yeah, that was like a year ago. Yeah. Um, but I know what you mean about how like when you're studying abroad, you don't take your studies as seriously. I spent a, a good amount of time getting drunk while I was over there. Because mm-hmm. I was oh, twenty, yeah. and I, you're you twenty, yeah. Uh, you can't drink in the U.S. till you're twenty-one. So I show up in the, in a country <laughs> where the drinking age is eighteen, and I I went fucking wild. <laughs> you should, you should. The yeah. UK is gorgeous. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I know, I know the U.S. has more to show because it's a bigger country, but the UK is. Uh, I, I I loved I loved it. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about this. Uh, in the past, but can you describe for the listeners what what was it that made you decide to go to law school? Why why law specifically? How did like you you mentioned to me once that some of your uh, experiences growing up kind of played a role in that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I remember I had like I I, I got a lot, I got along well with the English language. Um, I, I I never lived in an English country speaking uh, growing up. But I was able to learn English. Uh, I, I do a lot of readings. Um, I like politics, and uh, politics. There's a big overlap between law and politics. Um, and I cared about, you know, like things like human rights uh, and laws regarding human rights. I joined in undergrad. I joined the Model United Nations, and there's a lot of international law regarding that. I took a course. I loved it. Um, as things progress, I joined after after graduating from undergrad. I joined a, a humanitarian relief group called Save the Children, and my job my job was to read the contracts. There were usually there were there were these dance contracts, and I would I would have to translate and interpret them to the implementing team. I'd have to like make make the implementing team aware of our obligations, what we have to report, you know. Uh, and then I, there were like compliance issues. I'd have to report back to the office in London, tell them people were working with, see if they're on they're on, on any sanction list or terrorist list. Um, so that's that's how we worked. Uh, so and I thought, you know, this is all the more reason for me to study the outside and understand these contracts because 
you know, as a non-lawyer, you you can read a contract, but you can't understand it. You can't understand how to analyze a contract. Um. So yeah, I did the LSAT. Uh, I got I got the score that was good enough for for my university, and uh, I I think it was a good decision I made. You know, the first thing that shocked me when I moved to the U.S. I remember there was uh, the travel ban. Trump issued a travel ban. And Jeff Sessions was the attorney general. And, uh, a few, a few, the attorney generals of like, of, uh, Washington state and Hawaii, they did not like what Trump was doing. And there is a lawsuit. And I remember Jeff Sessions saying something like, why is, why is a judge, a judge sitting in a courthouse in Hawaii, uh, stopping the decisions of the president? And it really, oh, like, again, there's like, there's a judge all the way in, in a Hawaii. And he can, he can stop, he can stop Trump's decisions. That really blew my mind. It's like, holy shit. It's like, you know, this, this, this judge, it's, you know, you think the office of the president, wow. And then you think of some, some judge sitting in Hawaii is like, how, what can he do that shapes national policy? And yeah, he can stop a presidential order. I was like, wow. And there was not much Trump to, you know, this thing had to be appealed. It went, it went to the ninth, I think it was the ninth circuit and then it went to the Supreme Court and you know, the Supreme Court eventually uh, decided for Trump, but like it showed you that no uh, judges judges don't aren't bullied by by the uh, Trump administration. They, you know, Trump, and especially like Trump, I guess is not is an unusual U- U.S. president. He will he'll say things about judges that are not befitting. Like there was that one judge that that ruled on an immigration case against Trump, and then Trump made a statement about his uh, Mexican heritage. Yeah. Yeah, that's Trump does that. And you know, and I guess, and I'm sure many people know that the U.S. the U.S. system of law it's it's not perfect. It's it's far from it. There's lots of issues. How people are arrested, bail bonds, um, you know, the disproportional disproportional policing of Black Americans. Yeah. Uh, you know, bad jail conditions and stuff. But you know, here here's something. At least, at least we can talk about it. At least something we can, we can be informed about in contrast to Syria. Uh, that, that's, that's the first thing that distinguishes it. It's a, it's just like work. This is something that we can talk about. Yeah. Um, so when you're, when you're going to law school in the United States, what was it like? What, what, did you experience any forms of like culture shock? Okay. okay yeah. Th- this is going to be fun. So, um, okay. I moved, I moved to Cleveland. So Cleveland is not, it's, it's not by, it's not a global city. It is a, it's, a, it's, it's not, it's not even a big city in the United States. It's, it's not uh, a it used, city. It used to have a big, it used to be a big city. It used to be yeah. a bigger, it, it used to have a bigger weight, but it's not. Um, I move in, I move into a law school. Uh, public transportation in Cleveland is not the best. So um, my mobility is very limited. Um, my roommate is this uh, one guy from Texas. We're, we're best of, we're best of friends right now, but he was a messy roommate. Uh, but he really helped me transition better because he was he, he threw a lot of parties and uh, it was a really good way to socialize. But uh, you know, being surrounded by all these white students, uh, sorry, by these well, they were white students. Most most of them were white students and, and law students. So. That's all I got to see of, that was my, my first like living experience in the United States. And then I assumed the rest of the United States would be like that. People who could afford to go to law school, people who were within that class. 
And uh, I went I went to this one law school that was, I guess, Cleveland's Cleveland's finest law school, uh, where, 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 I don't know, the elite of Cleveland would send their, their kids. Um, and that was, and these people had, like, for fun, they would go to their country clubs, these golf courses. Um, and I, and, and it made me think the rest of the U.S. was like that. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't until my, 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 my first summer after, after law school. Um, I would have liked to go back to, to Lebanon and see my family, hang out with them, but I couldn't because Trump, Trump came up with a ban and now it was uncertain if I could return. So I got a, I got an internship at the city of Cleveland and I got to see way more of Cleveland city than than, than my days at law school. And I realized, nah, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of poverty here. There's a, uh, Cleveland is a majority black city. But every time I went, I went to downtown Cleveland, um, it was, uh, it, the bars and the clubs, it, it, it was disproportionately white. So, uh, that, that stuck out to me. Those were, the um, who, those were the people who could afford to go out, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, never, never did I have a racist incident. Never did I felt xenophobia. Never did I feel out of place. Uh, I always thought, thankfully, everyone I interacted with was welcoming, friendly. Uh, I made friends. Uh, Law school students are special breeds. Some of them can be assholes. Uh, There's a lot of competition, and some of them are willing to throw you under the bus to get ahead. Um... That was that was something. I don't think that's an American trait. I think that's a, like that's a law school trait. That's human nature. Yeah. Um. What else can I tell you? Um. But you know, I adapted. It was. It was. Uh. You know, I went. I went to. A, I guess a minor depression after Trump. Uh, there was a lot of in- uncertainty in my life after Trump did the ban. When would be the next time I'd, I'd see my family? My law school, the administration did something nice. They, they knew an immigration attorney because they're in law school. So they, yeah. and she, she, she convinced me to apply for asylum. It was a very hard decision to make. Uh, because back then the asylum process took five, seven years to clear. There's a lot, there's a huge backlog. Um, but she convinced me to apply to, for asylum. It was a hard decision to make. I sat on it, thought about it, and I did it. And I'm so glad I did it because it worked out. I got, I was one of the luckier ones because my, my case, um, was resolved in 13 months. And wow. here, here's, here's the, here's, it, it, I didn't have to wait for an interview. Most, like, the, the Trump administration's changed the policy of, of how they would schedule interviews. Previously, it was, uh, first, first, first come, first serve. But the Trump administration and their hope to, you know, get people out of the country, deport people out of the country. They were like, no, you, uh, it's last in, first out. So you applied recently, then you were going to try to schedule your, 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 uh, your interviews, uh, soon. So we can, we can get you as fast, uh, out of the country as fast as possible because, because they thought the Trump admission thought that people would, would apply with fraudulent applications or, or, or bogus applications just so they can have, buy some time in the U.S. Yeah, like that That whole justification was, as I understand it, was largely just an excuse to keep people out of the country. Like that, the the amount, like it, that rarely ever happens in real life. 
So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, you know, it does hold water. Unfortunately, many people oh. do abuse abuse the asylum. It's it, it's both. It's okay. it is both. It's it's a many people do abuse the asylum system. They have no good case. They uh, but but you know, it's, it's it could be a hail mary. And it, in some situations, it is like some people just don't have good applications. Sometimes they do get it, and sometimes people have very good applications and they don't. It's it's not the best process, but. You know, I was a law student. I took an asylum law class. I was, I had, I, I, everything that documented my reasons for persecution, like, were, it was, it was well documented. It was, it was literally on, on the internet. There were articles, there was videos, there's, at people, affidavits. I had a prof, I had George Orlandis, uh, one, one of, an advisor, an advisor to the U.S. State Department. He, he, and he, he wrote a letter urging them to accept my asylum application. So I was I was never worried because I knew what I was doing. I but it, they it took a decision because I my I got an interview four months after I applied for asylum, but and usually you're supposed to get a response two month two weeks after after your interview. But they sat online. They they made me wait like um, that's, that's they made, the government. They, they made they made me wait ten months. And and what 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 really helped got things moving was I contacted a senate this the senator for Ohio. The, the Republican one, by the way. Oh wow! Yeah, it's, it, it, it is funny because that's my my attorney just said she 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 apparently she's done it before, but she, she there's there's a form where you tell him I'm I'm, I'm basically his constituent because I'm because I live in Ohio, and uh, we just told him like hey can you just like ask what what, what the situation with this uh, application is because we we contacted uh, the immigration authorities before via email. And it was always the same boilerplate response, like, yeah, it's being processed, and that's all we can tell you for now. And the center's office was able to, you know, move things along and get me, I, I doubt, I doubt it had, they, they influenced the decision. All, all they did was they moved, like, helped, like, process the decision faster. And two weeks after, after I contacted the senator, the senator sent a letter to, uh, immigration authorities, and I got a letter in the mail saying I got approved for asylum. A good day, it was a good day. Yeah, sounds like it. So before you applied for asylum, did you you didn't think you were gonna live in the United States? No, no, I, I you know I, I moved to the United States, and you know, like I, I have some skills. I'm bilingual. I learned. I have some good degrees. Um, I, I thought maybe I could like you know get it, get that worker visa, but then there, you see there's like hostility towards Syrians from the Trump administration. Yeah, and I, I literally have nowhere to go. I literally have nowhere to go. I can't. My Syrian passport expired. I'm not going to renew it. I don't want to. I don't want to renew it. So I had nowhere to go. Before you applied for asylum in the U.S., did you think you were going to go back to living in Lebanon or? You know, so I contemplated it, but the thing is, though, the only reason, I, the only way I could live in Lebanon is if I could present valid Syrian papers, so I can get I can get residency on account that my mom is also Lebanese. Valid papers from the government you fled from. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 wow. crazy. It's so and I, and I, 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 yeah. I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna. By the way, do you know do you know if you're a Syrian outside outside Syria and you want to renew your 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 passport, you have to pay like eight hundred dollars. You got to pay them like a sizable amount of money. What? Yeah, and it's just like so. Not only not only did these people like kick you out and like you know they they made you a refugee. But now, now they even want you to pay for, for worthless papers. Hell no, hell no. How the hell could any leftists defend this government? I don't know. It's, it, 
I, I guess it's just, you know, the, I think for them, it's, it's a matter of, is this regime confronting the U.S.? I guess that's all they see, really. Maybe so, but I mean, that, you know, the Syrian regime is a far-right government by any classic, in any classic political science sense. It's it's literal fascism. Um, so eventually you got your law degree and you ended up living in Washington, D.C. Uh, how did that happen? It's actually a cool story. So I was living in Cleveland for three years. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of like a success story. I think, you know, my, my, my first years in Cleveland were tough. Uh, my first pay, paying job in Cleveland was I was a janitor. I finished my constitutional law classes, take a 20 minute nap, uh, then grab some coffee, then start working for as a janitor. That's how I got by. I hated that job. I quit. I applied for a small law firm or of an insurance company. I got the job. I, it was one of the best jobs I ever had in my life. Um, really helped me develop uh, in terms of professionalism stuff. I applied for a good internship with a major international hospital, the Cleveland Clinic. I got it. Um, so things were working out for me, working on my resume and stuff. I studied for the bar exam. I took it in New York. I let my lease expire. I sat for the, for the bar. I was technically homeless. On paper, I was homeless. My friends and I, we decided to roam the United States. We did this huge road trip across the United States for two months and a bit. Uh, we traveled coast to coast and back. And we were wondering where it was. It was like seeing the United States and wondering where we would settle because I had no roots in the United States. Uh, this was the new, my new country, my new adoptive country. And I was wondering, I, I traveled through 26 states and we were wondering what would be the best place to settle. That sounds like a, like a really cool movie. It just, it's, and it was, it was pretty cool because it was just like we, we spent the summer studying for the bar exam. We put, I put all my stuff in store in a U-Haul storage and then we just, do our things in, in the car, drove, drove to New York, to Buffalo, did the bar exam, and just drove across the rest of the U.S. So you were with uh, another Syrian guy, or? No, he, okay. he was, a, he was a, a friend. He's from Ohio, born okay. and raised. We were, you know, homeless in the sense that we were living in, in we were sleeping in tents, the car, hammocks, hotels, motels, hostels, people's houses. And sometimes we weren't even sleeping. We were just dri- driving throughout the night. Like he, he'd sleep and I'd drive and I'd, I'd sleep and he'd drive. Uh, for showers, we made a membership with a, with a gym called Planet Fitness. So it's, it's a gym franchise that's all across the United States. Yeah. And if, if you have a membership with one, you have a membership with all. And so it became mandatory. If you wanted to shower, you have to have a mandatory workout. So we got, we got to get with it. Uh, after after 65 days on the road like texas broke us texas broke us my my um my back started hurting a lot because i mean you're you're living in the car you're sleeping in the car you're you're always in a bad posture yeah well you're you're like beds were rare getting a bed was like wow that's a good night a a proper bed was a luxury yeah because otherwise it was sleeping in the tent or the hammock or the car Sean, I kid you not, like, we, we learned some good tips, like, uh, this is, this is gonna be funny, but if you ever book a hotel, you know, sometimes you can't check in it before, like, 2 p.m., but you arrive early and you're tired. Yep. Make sure you book a hotel that has a swimming pool, because then they have the lounging area. Mm. The, you know, those seat, those seats, the, that, where you can just, like, you can, you can sleep on it. Oh, yeah. So we learned that, like, if you wanted, if you wanted, to, if we we're gonna check in a place earlier than the check-in time, We'd show up, we'd, we, we would go sleep at the pool, 
and then we once we could check in, we go sleep in beds. So that trip is like, I mean, I've seen some pictures of you like uh, like kayaking and like hiking near the Grand Canyon. That's when those pictures were taken. Mm-hmm. That sounds like an amazing trip you went on, dude. It was, it was definitely, it was, uh, my only regret is I wish, I wish Texas didn't break us. I would have went, continued and went to the deep south. And, and I ended that with like arriving in, in Richmond. I have, I have a distant relative there. And I, I applied on Craigslist for a job in DC. And, uh, it was pretty funny. It was, uh, I got a job with this. It's, it's a regulatory monitoring firm, a really fancy one. They hired me for a one month project in Arlington. And this was, it was a very U.S. centered project. It, it's not, it's not international at all. But they, and they monitor like things like healthcare and, and insurance. And, and given that I lived in Cleveland, Cleveland is a very good market for healthcare. Given the the Cleveland Clinic is over there, um, you know, the presidential debate, Joe Biden versus Trump, is going to be hosted there. Oh wow! Uh, at the Cleveland Clinic and Case Western University. That's my law school. Um. So they're they're really good on healthcare, and I guess that's what made them. That's what made me stand out for this place. And uh, I arrived in Arlington. I was uh, I was I was invited to a party because I had a friend that that I, one of my friends from my days in Paris lived in D.C. She she worked for the State Department, and that's where I met my roommate who works in a think tank. And uh, life is funny; it just it happens so quickly and without much planning, but it worked out for the best. Yeah. That's- that's amazing. So, so you graduate law school, and you end up moving to DC to work for a law firm. It was first a regulatory firm. I, okay. It was just a project. I applied for a U.S. travel document that allowed me to see my family for the first time in three years. I went to Lebanon. I saw my, I attended my sister's wedding. That's great. And then I, I get back to DC just before the pandemic started here, and I got hired by a law firm, a small law firm in DC. What what has life been like for you in DC, uh, both before and after COVID? You know, it's, DC is such a it's it's such a, a unique place. You know, because there's the District of Columbia, a jurisdiction of its own, a progressive jurisdiction. Uh, but I live I live in Arlington. Okay. So it's part Arlington is, uh, and even Arlington is something special about it. Um, you know, six of six of the ten richest counties in, in the United States are in Northern Virginia. Fairfax County, Loudoun County, Prince George County, I think, uh, uh, Arlington, uh, and Alexandria. These are some of the richest counties per capita of the United States. It's way better maintained and uh, appealing than Cleveland or Ohio. It's way more international, way more diverse. DC, however, is, uh, is different from Arlington. You know, you can, you can, you know, visibly, when I go in Arlington, it's, I, I guess it's, it's mostly uh, white whites that live here. In contrast to DC, I go there. There's the, 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 the proportion of black people is way more in DC. Yeah. Um. You know, there were different laws during the pandemic. There were different, like slightly different people approaches to how you handle the pandemic. You know, DC, DC had had the mask order before. Uh, Virginia did. So, if you want to go shopping in in, in DC, you got to wear a mask. So, people would sometimes go to Virginia instead because they didn't want to wear a mask. Wow, these people not wearing masks has really, really screwed us. I've I've been in multiple situations down here in Georgia where like 
Which I'll look around, and I'm the only person in the room wearing a mask. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a lot of people where I live are not taking it as seriously as they should. Yeah. So, uh, what's going on with you right now? Um, how how is uh, how you getting by with COVID and everything? Well, to be honest, and I'm sure it's like probably the same for you. It's been a challenging time. It's not, it hasn't been fun. Um, I adjusted well. I had uh, I had an exposure to COVID. I, I actually think I got it. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, because I very early on when this thing was just just becoming a big. I got exposed to a guy who did a test and he was confirmed that he had COVID. The next two days later, I had all the symptoms of COVID. Oh, um, God. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. When when was this? Uh, this was in March, sometime in March. Well, I'm, I'm just fucking glad it was mild, dude. Yeah. Damn. You know, just, then you adjusted to working from home. I got used to that. And it was, it was tough because I had just started a job. So I wasn't I wasn't on the best of terms with, with these people I was working with. So how I coordinate and stuff. Luckily, luckily it gave me my, my work hours dropped. So did my paycheck, I guess, because my hours dropped. But uh, it gave me more time to learn things. I, uh, you know, you just you got I got just to working from home. I got I got to show you my computer setup. I just sent you a, a text. Uh, okay. That that's my my home office. Oh, there it is. Just got it. Whoa! What? What is that? <laughs> yeah, that's that's how I work. So, because because like I I keep jumping between documents. So that's how I work. Wow, dude! I mean, oh my god! Like I've seen I've seen like like two screens and a laptop. I have never seen four screens plus a laptop put together like that. Yeah, yeah, but it's 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 actually. I, it, and you know what? I, I bought these screens used, so it wasn't it wasn't hard set up. Man, I gotta get me one of those. That's I, I only paid one hundred seventy five for everything. Wow. All right, um, yeah, that's that's gonna be like that's on my Christmas list. I gotta get something like that. I, I guess I'm just I'm, I'm dealing with COVID the way most people are as well. You know, just yeah. sp- spending way more, more time at home, making <laughs> made my own home office. Um, I, I get I get a bit more power over my my schedule and says like I can I don't have to show up at work at eight a.m. Um, I can I, I actually go to the gym for first thing in the morning and then I work I work t- towards late late. That's awesome. What what are your goals for the future once once the pandemic is over once life kind of goes back to normal? What what, what are you uh, intending to do? Where where do you want to go in life? You know, it's, I have to reevaluate given like what I care about. I care about Syria a lot, but I've been also, you know, I, I've been given this opportunity to, you know, study law in the United States and I work for a firm in DC. I very, I feel very fortunate and lucky. I, I really hope someday that I, that I get to work on international law regarding Syria. That would be the ultimate dream. I, 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 I can't see it happening as long as, uh, you know, something, something major doesn't change in the Syrian conflict. I'm making, I'm, I'm, the U.S. is my new home right now. I love it. I'm happy here. Um, are you going to pr- pursue citizenship? Yeah. There, the, the firms, the firms I want, the jobs I want. I, I, the unfortunate thing is citizenship is also sometimes a prerequisite to having a, a career. Mm. If you, if you need to travel a lot, you need, you need a document that helps you travel. When I traveled on, the Syrian passport does not help much. I, then I got the U.S., my U.S. travel document. 
And that's that's not as helpful as I as I hope it was. It, it is better than a Syrian passport. I can go to some countries without a visa, but but it's not it's not many countries. Um, yeah, I think I want to pursue U.S. Plus, also the security of U.S. citizenship being in the U.S. Uh, yeah. We can see, I mean, depending on which administration rules, uh, the U.S. can be a hostile place for immigrants, depending on the administration. So, I do want to get naturalized. I never I never want to deal with, with ICE or CBP. I, I really think, uh, you know, I really hope the next administration that takes over, uh, that, 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 goes, uh, that goes in after Trump, like, they, they'll, they'll, they'll change... They'll do something about ICE because uh, this agency—it's it, a bad agency. It, it ignores the law. Uh, it does some inhumane things. Yeah, it's beyond reform. It needs to be re- replaced entirely. Yeah. Like I know some people on the left rubbed people the wrong way with slogans like "abolish ICE," but. Mm-hmm. It, when you look at what ICE does, it's it's understandable why people were saying that. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, I don't know. Just like the whole, the, the U.S. immigration system has to be reformed because we do try to work hard. We we do our best, but it's it's just like a very uh, ungrateful system too. What is your reaction to the sentiment among some Americans that's very fearful or hateful of immigrants? So um, I've been exposed to people who weren't fond of immigrants a few times, um, depending on the context that it comes from. But, like, nearly everyone in the United States is an immigrant. Nearly everyone. Some exceptions for, like, Native Americans. And uh, there's also this bullshit argument that I came here the right way, the legal way. And, and back then, the legal way was you showing up on a boat to, on Ellis, to Ellis Island. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't... And, and back then, all you had to do was anglicize your name, show yeah. that you, you weren't coughing on the spot, yeah. and then you were on your way. But now, it's, are you from Syria? Then there is no line. There is no entry, no pathway. Or uh, there, there's a lot of people who don't understand the U.S. immigration system, how, how, you know, how bad it is. I, and, you know, as a legal immigrant, I don't, I don't like it when people use my experience to make illegal, quote-unquote, quote, illegal immigrants look bad. Or I'm gonna say undocumented. Um, there's plenty of space. Uh, one 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 thing that really makes America a great country is the, the richness of cultures. The, the, you know the cuisines it offers. The, the many many of you know a lot of the Nobel Prize winners that, that are U.S. nationals were, were immigrants. Some of the best entrepreneurs in the United States were immigrants. Uh, I don't know what else I could say. It's I feel I feel like these people that are, that don't like immigrants they they feel probably threatened that immigrants are going to do better than them. And I guess that's where it's coming from. It's just like they don't like the fact that someone is able able to make it better in this country than them. Yeah. But but I can't speak for them, so I don't know. Yeah. All right. So the very last question. Sure. So you've mentioned that your your aunts are trying to set you up with. Like a wife or something? <laughs> what's yes, what's the yes. story behind that? Well, I mean, I'm I'm 27 years old, just about to turn 28. Um, I'm single. Um, so is so are most people during COVID. Yeah, I guess. I guess <laughs> I'm young. Um, and I guess I guess the fact that I live in the United States, I guess, I guess that my aunt's mind makes me makes me a very attractive suitor. Oh God. For, 
And, and, and by the way, this, that's how dating, dating in, in Syrian culture goes. It's like, usually it's like some referral from a close family member or, or friend. They, they see, they see some, some girl or guy they like and they think that they should, they should situate with them. It's really funny. Uh, I was sitting, I was sitting in my, my aunt's house, minding my own business. She comes with her phone. She pulls up Instagram, shows me these profile, profiles of these girls that she wants me to meet. And it's like, you're put on the spot. Like many of these girls are, are many of these girls are pretty. Like wow, you're gorgeous. Like you, I do want to meet them, but it's just like also. But like there's a like do you? But our, Syrian dating is it's not. Do you want to meet them? It's like do you want me to talk to her mother so then her mother can tell her to like expect your call so then you can go on a chaperone date and then <laughs> dis, then discuss a pathway to marriage. That's how it works. That's how it works. Wow. Some, somebody it's, needs to write a, a somebody needs to like make a rom-com about that. Oh, hell yeah. Dude, dude, have you seen a show that show called Rami? I've heard of it. I've never seen it. You know, I I think it it captures a lot of the it captures a lot of the American Muslim experience pretty well. I I I have to check it out, but like so so it's not like a, like a an arranged marriage in the traditional sense. It's just like a, a socially conservative kind of dating, like. Uh, so, so here's here's the thing. What what is you got to define arranged marriage? Yeah. What what is there? It's like because there's a there is there's some influence. There is some filtering. It it it. it and it, I guess it differs by family. Some with some families, there are there are people who are just like you're going to marry this man, no choice about it. It does happen. Damn. I I don't I don't know anyone that that happened to personally, but like I'm I'm sure it does. Um. And then you have very liberal Syrians who date like the Western way. Yeah. I don't know the fun way. So, <laughs> well, it's it's I call it the play, playing with fire way because you know the, uh, you know. Dating is dating is fun, like you know, having having that, you know, meeting up with random, hooking up with random people and stuff. It's it, it, it is nice. Yeah, you know, I, you can, you can appreciate something about that. But also, if you want, if you want, like, if you're looking for a life companion, yeah. having having family involved kind of gives you a guarantee. Like, I'm seeing this girl, and I read, I, I met her parents. She's met mine. And that gives us assurance that you know I'm I'm not a toy in her life, or she's not a toy in my life. That's interesting. That's uh, I mean, that, that, I mean, you you went through a breakup recently, no? Well, that was well, a couple of them, but <laughs> like yeah, I, yeah. I just I gotta say, like that what you're describing is very, very different from what I experienced growing up in in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like in the in the in the U.S., it's like you do all that on your own, and then once you find somebody. Then you introduce her to your to the family yourself. It's like mm-hmm. it's not the other way around, like it is with um, Syrian Tinder, as you once called it. Yeah, yeah. Hi. Um, I, I will tell you this. Um, you know, it, it is it is one of a big difference in, in the United States. It's just like the U, U, U.S. people are are way more in, independent and in, individually. You, I mean, I see I see a lot of uh, my friends in law school. It's they weren't getting support from their family to live through law school. They were taking loans from the government of which they would be accountable for. Um, they That's were the ones that were deciding who, who did, who do they date and who did they, who meets their parents. And, and they had like a very, uh, their relationship with my, my roommate, for example, he would call his, his, his parents like 
twice a month. I, I call them every day. Wow. I don't know how representative that is of all Americans, but Syrians are, are way more a family-centric society in contrast to the United States. Yeah, like, growing up in the U.S., uh, people don't start nagging us to get married and have kids till we're, like, in our 30s or even, like, 40s for men. Yeah. Like, but it sounds like that happens a lot earlier. Uh, but, but I mean, you know, you've gone through a breakups and, like, to be honest, they suck. Yeah, they do. Um, I do value the freedom, though, of being able to meet somebody of my own choosing. Um, I, I don't know how I would feel about my aunt walking up to me and showing me a bunch of people's pictures on her phone. Okay, okay. I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, it's, it's not that bad. It's not that good, but it's not that bad. Like, you know, she's not, she's not showing me, you know, some of these, prima facie, like these, some of these girls are very pretty. So, you know, it's so, and that's like what essentially Tinder is. You, you see, you see someone that you're physically attracted to. So that already takes care of one thing for you. Um, most of the time, you know, my, my family, they try to like filter, like, did she achieve things in her life? Did they, Hmm. marriage, marriage in our society is a marriage of families, not a marriage of two individuals. Well, that right there might be the difference between um, dating and marriage in the U.S. versus dating and marriage in Syrian culture. Like, uh, yeah. Like, were, were these girls like? Were they like wearing hijabs? Were they religiously conservative? Was it a mix of people? So, uh, I guess my family knows that I'm not interested in hijabis. Okay. So um, they don't. They don't even bother. <laughs> uh, they don't even bother asking me. Um, you know, U.S. U.S. Syrians are a bit more. I mean, they, they come in all shapes and sizes. Actually, some of them are very liberal, some of them are very conservative. I've dated a few here and there. Um, couldn't I couldn't find anyone that it could work out one hundred percent. Um. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, a, I gotta say, this is a much more fun topic to talk about than, uh, war and death and all that stuff. Uh, oh, fair. No, definitely. <laughs> figure we had to end on a good note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, um, well, we're gonna have to end it here. It's almost midnight where I'm at, well, actually, we're in the same time zone, so it's almost midnight. Um, is there, what, is there anything you want to say to the listeners, anything you, a last message you want to convey something that you think is important for people to hear that you didn't get to? I guess, I, I guess I'll say there, there are many, like there were so many casualties of, of the Syrian conflict and things that went bad. And, uh, you know, and, and I don't think, I don't think justice, uh, will ever be achieved, but I guess one thing that can be achieved is that, you know, there, there's a proper documentation of what, what happened. And, you know, a time that we we can assign assign culpability. I think that's at the, at this point, that's the best we can do for the same people right now. A lot of perpetrators of crimes, whether they were whether they were done by the opposition or by the regime, I'm 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 very pessimistic about whether they will ever see justice. But I think the best way to pursue justice right now um, would be to properly document this so that should should we should we ever like you know come, how it goes down in history. People will know what happened. 
Well, Mamoun, thanks a lot for joining me tonight, dude. I had a hell of a lot of fun asking these questions. I learned a lot of really important stuff, um, especially how Syrian Tinder works. <laughs> Mamoun Mahaini is currently an attorney living in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Mamoun, for sharing your story with us on Damascus to D.C. on the run How far can he go 